Articles by Desiring God Did Jesus Need the Spirit? Pondering the Power of the God-Man Written and read by David Mathis How did Jesus walk on water? How did he feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish? How did he raise Lazarus from the dead? Unless we have been carefully taught, many Christians would be quick to say simply, because he is God, and truly he is. But is that how the New Testament answers these questions? If we follow the emphasis of the Gospels, we might say that what Jesus' miracles show is that he is God, but how he as man performs these wonders is not quite as simple and immediate as we may assume. In particular, What are we to say about the many texts that testify to the Holy Spirit's presence in the human life of Christ? Did Christ, in his humanity, actually need the Holy Spirit if he performed such signs simply by virtue of his divinity? When we recognize the surprisingly recurrent theme of the divine Spirit's relationship to the divine Son in his humanity, we might understand Jesus and the Gospels better and freshly marvel at what grace Christ offers us in the gift of his Spirit. Jesus and the Spirit First, let's rehearse the string of biblical texts that lead us to what is often called a spirit Christology, which is simply a term for recognizing the critical part played by the person and work of the Spirit in the person and work of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson observes three distinct stages in the life of Christ through which we might acknowledge the Spirit's relationship to the Son. Those stages are as follows with key texts. First, conception, birth, and growth. As we know from some of our favorite Advent readings, the Holy Spirit is present and pronounced in the angelic announcements to both Mary and Joseph. How will it be, Mary asks, that I, a virgin, will conceive and bear a son? Luke one thirty five says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So too in Matthew's account about Joseph. The Spirit both frames the report and is explicit in the angelic announcement. Yet, the Spirit is not only present and explicit at the conception and birth of Christ, but also specifically prophesied by Isaiah seven centuries prior as resting upon the coming anointed one. Isaiah 11.2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, in Jesus of Nazareth, the long promised shoot from the stump of Jesse has come and the spirit of wisdom and understanding upon him is seen even as early as age 12, as Jesus listens in the temple to the teachers and asks them questions. Luke 2, 47-48 says, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Even in childhood, as Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, He was not on his own, but had the Spirit as his inseparable companion, as the great Cappadocian theologian Basil of Caesarea captured it so memorably. Second, baptism 
Temptations and Ministry Isaiah's prophesied anointing with the Spirit comes to the fore again at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, beginning with his baptism. The forerunner, John the Baptist, tells of a coming spirit baptism that John's water baptism anticipated. But first, before baptizing others in the Spirit, Jesus himself will be the preeminent man of the Spirit. When Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Here, at the outset of his public ministry, the Spirit descends on him with new fullness for his unique calling, and the voice from heaven first connects the anointed of Psalm 2 with the suffering servant of Isaiah 42. The servant and son not only enjoys God's full favor, but he is also the one of whom it is said, I have put my spirit upon him. Freshly endowed with the spirit, Jesus then goes to the wilderness. Not only is he led by the spirit into the wilderness, but as Mark reports it, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, not as a retreat, but as an advance in war to encounter the enemy and begin taking territory back. Once Christ has returned, victorious in his wilderness test, in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4.14, he comes to Galilee, to his hometown of Nazareth. In the synagogue, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And what does he read? As the first public act of his baptism, he begins with Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus' ministry then unfolds in the subsequent pages as, by the Spirit, he proclaims good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus will testify that it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. By the Spirit, he teaches with unusual authority. Fully man, he is fully dependent on his Father, having come not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. And as Peter one day will summarize his life in telling his story to Gentiles, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. In the words of John 3.34 and Isaac Ambrose, Jesus received the Spirit out of measure. There was in him as much as possibly could be in a creature and more than in all other creatures whatsoever. Third, death, resurrection, and ascension. Significant as the testimony is about the Spirit's work in Jesus' childhood and ministry, we might expect that when he comes to die and rise and ascend, we would hear about the Holy Spirit here too. Indeed, we do. According to Hebrews 9.14, Jesus offered himself for sins at the cross through the eternal spirit. As he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, mounted the donkey on Palm Sunday, confronted scribes and Pharisees, and prayed with loud cries and tears in Gethsemane, Jesus was anointed, sustained, and strengthened by the spirit to the end and beyond. 
in his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. As Paul writes in Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In promising a coming of and a baptizing with the Holy Spirit, Jesus ascended to heaven to be glorified at God's right hand, where he would then pour out the Spirit on those who believe. Amazingly then, Peter would preach, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Now, to receive Christ is to receive the Spirit, and vice versa. In fact, the Holy Spirit has become such an inseparable companion for Christ that we find a striking identification of Jesus and the Spirit in the letters of Paul, as in 1 Corinthians 15.45 and 2 Corinthians 3.17-18. Not only is the Holy Spirit now the Spirit of Jesus, but the glorified Christ and the poured out Spirit can be spoken of interchangeably in Romans 8, 9 to 11. Christians have the Spirit of Christ, and in the Spirit, Christ is in you. Jesus did not cheat. Now, back to our original question. How did Jesus walk on water, multiply loaves, and raise the dead? The New Testament witness to the Spirit as Christ's inseparable companion and source of divine power is too pronounced to ignore. Jesus, the God-man, apparently needed the Spirit. The terms of the Incarnation in honoring the fullness of His humanity were that the second person of the Trinity did not immediately provide divine power and help to the human Christ. Rather, He did so mediately through the Spirit. It was the great Puritan theologian John Owen who perhaps first ventured the formulation that now has stood for almost four centuries. Quote, The only singular immediate act of the person of the Son on the human nature was the assumption of it into subsistence with himself. End quote. In other words, the eternal Son's only direct act on his human nature was uniting that humanity to himself in the Incarnation. Every other act upon Christ's human nature, writes Mark Jones, was from the Holy Spirit. Christ performed miracles through the power of the Spirit, not immediately by his own divine power. As Jones comments elsewhere, Christ's obedience in our place had to be real obedience. He did not cheat by relying on his own divine power while he acted as the second Adam. The Holy Spirit has accompanied, supplied, and carried the Son in his human nature from conception to childhood, to ministry, to the cross and resurrection, and now in his glory, fully endowed as the man of the Spirit at God's right hand. The Spirit of Christ in us. Why make a point of what some might perceive as a technicality? Why note, as Kyle Clanch does, this marked contrast between the New Testament emphasis and the tendency of post-biblical authors who appeal to the deity of Jesus as the explanation for the extraordinary features of his life and ministry. For one, a spirit Christology demonstrates the genuine humanness of Christ, which is vital not only for our imitation in this life, 
but even more for his perfect human life to count savingly in the place of sinners. Also, observing the critical place of the Holy Spirit with respect to the humanity of Christ helps us understand the Bible. From Isaiah to the Gospels and Acts and to the Epistles, God's Word notes again and again, as we've seen, the power of the Spirit as Christ's inseparable companion. If we want to know and understand God's Word, we will not want to read a phrase like, by the Spirit, as white noise, but read it with meaning. Finally, a spirit Christology shows us what is possible in us by the same Spirit who dwells in us, not mainly in terms of being the Spirit's channel for displays of extraordinary power, though we might grow to be expectant of more than we have, but most significantly in terms of holiness and spiritual joy. Here, we do well to marvel. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus' earthly life and sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection has been given to us today. He not only works on us and through us, but dwells in us. He has been given to us. We have received Him. The very power of God Himself in His Spirit has come to make Himself at home in some real degree and to increasing effect in us. We are His temple, both individually and collectively. And a day is coming when we, like Christ, will reign in glory, fully endowed with the Spirit, to enjoy life and God in Christ beyond what we've ever even imagined so far. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.